Okay, hi everybody. We're going to get started. Um, I wanted to just at the outset update again on the syllabus. Um, I'm still having a little bit of trouble getting the guests rescheduled, so I'm going to change that. Um, I'll, I'll get it, I promise, by Wednesday. I know that people obviously plan ahead. Um, but the, the important thing to be totally clear is we are going to be having class both days uh, after reading week. So just, you know, that idea there'd be no class one of those days is off. I'll get the updated syllabus by Wednesday. And I, I really apologize that it's taken me a little bit to get this uh, figured out. But it'll be done soon. Again, I promise. Um, okay, so I want to get right into it today because we have a fair amount to get through, a fair amount of interesting stuff. And we are going to finish off remedies today. Um, I'm going to finish going through the chapter, specifically talking about these old equitable writs that are important to have some familiarity with. It's not, um, I'm not going to go too deep into them, but some familiarity is important. Um, and then we're going to get into the cases. And I am looking forward to showing you a really interesting exchange between Joe Arvey and the Supreme Court of Canada in the Insight case. So we'll um, do that right after the break. Um, so picking up sort of where we left off, remember I was explaining how relief in a judicial review is fundamentally equitable relief. And you're calling on the courts to invoke equitable jurisdiction, and you're calling on the courts to invoke equitable jurisdiction fundamentally for these rule of law concerns of making sure the executive stays within the scope of its powers. So when you are invoking equitable relief, a lot of times things get a little bit historical. And what I mean by that is that you, um, you run into these equitable doctrines that have evolved for quite a while and quite often um, you know, have references to the old Latin names, honestly. You see a lot of Latin when you get into equity. Um, and so the relief that you can seek in a judicial review stems from the old equitable writs. And this is, you know, writ was literally something you would, you know, fill in and file saying that I want relief from the court, I'm demanding relief from the court. And the types of relief you could get included these certiori prohibition, mandamus, other equitable um, forms of relief. So I want to go through these to make sure you know what they are. Then I'm going to talk about why they're not uh, specifically all that important anymore in the sense that you don't have to file a true equitable writ anymore due to statutory reform. I'm going to touch on that. But first, let's talk about what these writs are and what they give you. And number one with a star with a big circle bolded in your notes is certiori. Certiori. This is an equitable form of relief where the, in essence, it means show me um, the record of your decision such that I may review it for jurisdiction. And the court asks somebody, some decision maker, to provide it with the record upon which it made its decision. And the court will review that to ensure that decision was within jurisdiction. That is really the essence of judicial oversight of the executive. So when you are thinking about administrative law, you want to think that's fundamentally what I'm doing 99% of the time 
invoking the court's supervisory jurisdiction to make sure that somebody stayed within the scope of its jurisdiction. And I'll come back to this a little bit when I talk about Air Canada, but the basis upon which you conduct that review is you say, give me the record, give me what was before you to let me have a look at it. When the court is uh, satisfied that the body did step outside its jurisdiction, the remedy is to quash, set aside that decision. And this is overwhelmingly the remedy you're looking at when you invoke an application for judicial review. You're going to ask the court to quash, to set aside a decision. And then what happens next? Well, the matter would usually be sent back to that same decision maker to decide again. We'll talk more about this wrinkle when we get to um, questions of bias and procedural fairness. But ordinarily, I really do mean the same decision maker. Uh, the court won't direct that a different person at the tribunal hear the matter usually. Ordinarily, it will be up to the tribunal itself to decide who hears the matter again. And oftentimes, it will be the exact same individual. So if there's really one thing that I want to forcefully you know, uh, impart to you in this lecture, it's that your ordinary relief is just going to be quash a decision, set it aside, and remit it back to the tribunal to try again. That's what you have to make sure your client understands is the likely outcome of your judicial review application. And that's what you have to decide if is really in your client's interest to get that kind of relief. But that's what's most often available and so much of the other things we talk about today, or even we talk about remedies broadly, is exceptions, other things that might be available, other wrinkles to this. But those really are the exceptions. And honestly, you know, you, you spend more time on the exceptions because this point is maybe um, fairly straightforward, but that doesn't mean it's not the most important part. This is what you're gonna get. So you're gonna seek relief in the nature of certiori, and you're going to hope to have the decision set aside and remitted for reconsideration. Try again. So number one, equitable writ, search URI, most important, bold it, highlight it, star it. Remember, that's what you're normally going to get. I'm going to run through the other ones so you understand what they are. But of course, don't let that detract from the primacy of search URI. The second writ um, is much less commonly invoked. I've not had opportunity to invoke it. I thought about it once, but it ended up not being necessary. Prohibition is in essence the court telling a decision maker, don't exercise a statutory power that you have. Uh, you, you cannot use this power in these circumstances. So it's when you apprehend something's gonna happen to your client, there's gonna be some power that's gonna be exercised and perhaps you know, the exercise of that power would cause immediate harm to your client and you believe that there's a fundamental basis why it would be contrary to the rule of law to that have that power exercised against your client. You could seek to preempt that by seeking an order in the nature of prohibition. It rarely arises. 
But if you understand that basic idea of what it is, it's the court saying, oh, don't exercise your power here. There's something wrong if you try to do so. Getting ahead of things, it's, um, that's the essence of prohibition. So still relevant, but much less important. I've starred the three that are still really important. And again, this one should be starred, bold, highlighted. The next one is mandamus. Some people say mandamus, but I think mandamus is more accepted. It doesn't really matter. People know what you're talking about if you say either. Um, mandamus is a form of equitable relief that requires a tribunal to act. And what you run into here is sometimes you have tribunals who have been asked to do something or should proactively be doing something, but are maybe intentionally sitting on their hands, maybe are not prioritizing their work properly and are not getting to something, uh, may just be mismanaged and uh, it's just for whatever reason, they're not making the decision that they need to be making. So mandamus is a form of relief where you say, decision maker, you have to make this decision. You have to go ahead and do this in some reasonable amount of time. You can't wait any longer. And this can be a really effective form of relief and it can be quite important to your clients because you may have any number of highly time sensitive projects that are um, being held up by you know, a bureaucratic red tape, by the failure for a decision to even be made perhaps, as opposed to a negative decision, just the absence of a decision when you need a positive permit or authorization to do something, you know, can be just as bad as a no. Um, I had a, a case once where I was defending the government in a civil action, not a judicial review, because somebody was trying to build a shopping mall and they required an environmental assessment to be complete before they could break ground, before they could get any other permits. And the environmental assessment process took something like two years. And there were periods of delay where it seemed like not a whole lot was happening on the environmental assessment side. The company went bankrupt. They did not succeed in their project. Um, and so they sued seeking damages saying, well, government, you, um, you know, you bankrupted my company. But one thing I said in part of my response was you never sought mandamus. You had the power to seek relief from these courts to get this process moving, but you can't sit back, not exercise your rights and then later sue for damages. So mandamus and the power to compel government to act in a more timely way to avoid delay can be quite important, not only to secure rights for your client, but also to avoid that kind of a response from the government that you, um, you know, you're, you're the author of your own misfortune. You sat back and didn't take proactive steps to protect your rights. And so that might resonate in a lack of ability to get, um, you know, damages for government action. As just an example, so you get a sense as to how this could really resonate in the real world. But the fundamental thing you want to take away from mandamus is it's telling the government to go do something. And there's a wrinkle here that mandamus, when it's properly interpreted and understood, really shouldn't be telling the government what to do in the sense of this, go decide this, 
in this way, but rather it's telling the government, just go make the decision. One way or the other, you have the power, go exercise it. Just put a pin in um, this for a second. I'm going to come back to mandamus and search URI in the context of a direction. And that's when the court does tell the decision maker something about how to exercise their power. So the thing I said, you know, mandamus is about just go do the thing, not what decision are you actually going to make? Just make a decision. Where that gets a little complicated is when you combine mandamus with a direction, which I will come back to once I run through the final three writs. The fourth is a declaration, declaratory relief. This is where the court declares something about the law to be the case, or perhaps uh, the application of the facts to the law should result in you know, what, what legal consequence. Declarations are technically non-binding. It's the court making a declaration about what the law is or ought to be. There's a really arcane wrinkle that I want to talk about here, though, which is declarations are technically non-binding, but there's such a big caveat to that 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 previous part of the sentence almost isn't really worth saying. And that big caveat is that declarations are expected to be obeyed by the government. So the courts say, technically this is non-binding, but if I declare something, if I, the judiciary, declare something, and the executive refuses to do it, we have given ourselves a huge rule of law problem. So the theory is declarations technically non-binding. However, the rule of law demands that the government be expected to follow declarations. Now, why it's non-binding, I mean, is that if they don't follow the declaration, there isn't a legal remedy for that. There isn't a, a, a contempt power or something like that that ought to be invocable, able to be invoked. But that by convention, by basic structure of the government, the expectation is that declarations will be followed. And so the courts are reluctant to grant them um, unless they're necessary. And they don't see them as optional. They're not an opinion. They're not just something, hey, government, I think it's this way. Of course, this is non-binding. Do what you're going to do. It's I've given an opinion on the law. You're the government. You follow it. So declaratory relief, despite its technically non-binding nature, is very powerful. Okay, one more caveat or a sort of aside that I want to, to just lay out, not hugely important, but just something that comes up in this context and is worth mentioning. Technically, you cannot get an injunction against the government. This is really old law, and it comes from the notion that the crown is indivisible in some sense. And ultimately, the judiciary, the legislature, the executive are all different really emanations, different parts of the crown. And the deep theory is that it's um, untoward or improper to have the idea that one part of the crown is enjoining, you know, forcing another part of the crown to do something. 
So this is old law. It's also still um, still a fact. It's it's codified indeed in the judicial in the um, Crown Liability and Proceedings Act. That's federal legislation. The Crown Proceedings Act, which is provincial legislation, both of them explicitly say you can't get injunctive relief against the Crown. What's the workaround? You get a declaration, and it amounts to the same thing. So it's a, it's a small practice point, but you may find yourself saying, oh, the Crown is doing something, I need to get enjoined. Then you may think, oh, I remember, wait, I should actually frame this as declaratory relief just because of that little wrinkle. And otherwise, the government lawyers will say, oh, Crown Liability Proceedings Act, you can't get an injunction. They'll say, it doesn't really matter, I'm getting a declaration. So don't want to derail us too much, but that's just a little point that um, helpful to know, useful to know. Okay. Quickly on the last two, these are things that are really peripheral to this course. I'll explain what they are, and I doubt we'll revisit them at all. Uh, habeas corpus, you've heard that phrase before, no doubt. Uh, it means show me the body, uh, which means show me the person who's being detained so that I, the court, can review whether their detention is lawful. This does fit in this broad scheme of judiciary overseeing the executive, and indeed it's the highest stakes in a way. The executive has taken somebody into custody, and the court is, has a right to say, um, you know, bring that person before me so that I can assess whether or not their detention is lawful. So theoretically, it fits in this framework. Practically, this is really more criminal law, so we're not going to touch much on it here. Um, Quo warranto is a really arcane uh, piece of um, the remedial authority. Uh, it means by what warrant, and it in essence um, asks the. It, you can compel the government to explain the legal basis upon which they're acting. Um, it's so uh, irrelevant and ineffectual in the face of certiorari when you can get them to bring the you know, record before you in order to ascertain if they're acting within their authority. That just getting them to explain it is a pretty weak remedy. And it's sort of a half step towards certiorari. It's been abolished by statute in a lot of places. And it just really is something that there's not much point in talking more about. You may never hear those words again in your career, honestly. So let's, you know, it doesn't even almost deserve a place on the board. All right, so I'm going to ask for questions in a second, but I just wanted to quickly touch on direction first, because this is really quite important. Certiori, I'm quashing, I'm setting aside. Mandamus, I'm saying you have to make a decision. Neither one of those involves the court telling the decision maker how to make a decision. Just go make it or do it again. Directions are what enables the court to step in and dictate an outcome or preclude at least some uh, scope of potential outcomes. A direction is where the court says something to the tribunal about the matter before them. A direction may be so specific as to say, 
There is only one way you could reasonably exercise this discretion, and you must exercise it this way. I direct you to. Now I am, the court is, just issuing certiorari, quashing and setting aside, or I'm just issuing mandamus, forcing you to uh, decide something. But I'm combining that with a direction from the court saying, decide it this way. You do those two things, you in essence have stepped into the shoes of the decision maker. And when we get to Air Canada, we're going to see why in a principled way, courts can be reluctant to make those declarations, or those, sorry, those directions. Um, and it, I got to be careful not to say uh, direction when I mean declaration and vice versa, because they are different concepts. So we're going to see more about directions, uh, especially in the Air Canada and the, and the Insight cases. Okay, now I'll pause. Are there any questions about the uh, these writs? Yeah. 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 Um, what a, a perfect question because that is the next thing I want to get to. So yes, let's let's get into that. Um, they have in essence abolished all of them by replacing them with statutes saying you can get relief in the nature of these things. So I'm going to show you what I mean by that. So every jurisdiction in Canada, except for the Yukon, as far as I understand it, has in fact done away with all of these writs in the sense that you don't have to invoke the court's inherent equitable jurisdiction anymore, which came with some annoying procedural requirements, like to actually file a writ, things like that that can be discouraging to access to justice. And especially in the judicial review framework, they can be discouraging because you don't want a legalistic problem with a pleading to disentitle someone to relief. So they've simplified things by replacing the equitable writs by implication. I mean by implication, they don't explicitly have to say these are abolished. They say you can proceed this way through statute and the court says like, just this is the way to go now. This is the option the legislature has made available. And by using this language, like you see in the Judicial Review Procedure Act, which is a statute we're gonna come back to, there's the two main statutes that govern judicial review in British Columbia the Administrative Tribunals Act. That's that list of things you can order off when designing a tribunal. We'll talk more about that. We introduced it last class. And the Judicial Review Procedure Act, which is a general statute dealing with procedure to bring judicial review applications. And in that general procedural statute, the JRPA is how you'll hear it referred to most often. The um, legislature has made clear that an application for judicial review, the court may grant relief that you'd be entitled to um, in the nature of mandamus, prohibition, or certiori. So they have, um, instead of saying you have to actually go ask for this equitable writ, they've said, you know what kind of relief you would get if you had invoked certiori, mandamus, prohibition, and courts, you are entitled to grant that within the context of a judicial review. Um, they haven't said anything about declarations, but the court will allow declarations on the basis of petitions. They don't really get fussy about um, about form on that. 
Um, I don't know much about habeas corpus, to be honest. It's just not something that I deal with because it really is a criminal law question. So you see this in uh, the Federal Courts Act also, and they, they list more writs. They do include declaration and habeas corpus within their equivalent section. But the, the fundamental point is that there's been this legislative move to retain the essential character of the relief you could get while doing away with the sort of arcane procedural hoops you had to jump through to get that kind of relief. That's the big picture takeaway. Um, and if you go to the court and you say, I want certiorari, they say, I know what you mean. You want relief in the nature of certiorari under the JRPA, not a problem. Uh, so the good thing is they've gotten away from some um, there are technicalities, uh, but the important thing is that you understand what the essence of this relief is going to look like. That's a great question. Any other questions? Okay. Um, I'll point out that Section 5 of the JRPA uh, explicitly records the power of the court to issue directions when asking a tribunal to reconsider. And you see under section two, um, the court may give directions that it thinks appropriate for the reconsideration. And what you're getting at there is, this is the legislature explicitly saying, look, um, Maybe on a pure administrative law theoretical basis, I'll come back to this in a second, the courts really shouldn't be stepping in and telling tribunals how to do anything. Come back to that when I get to Groberman's reasons in Air Canada. But we see the efficiencies, and if a court sees something, telling the tribunal um, you know, what the court thinks about the, this, this discretion here, how they, uh, giving some direction, so we are going to explicitly grant that power to the courts to issue directions, which is technically not one of these uh, equitable writs, but it's been adopted by the legislature as a power the courts should have in judicial review. Just parking that there because we're going to come back to it really soon with Air Canada when we're going to get into the question of, well, what sort of restraint should the courts feel in issuing these directions. Okay, any other questions? All right, um, I'm gonna move along then. So we've gotten through the writs and the statutory reform. That was that topic there. Moving on quickly to the question of money on judicial review. Obviously money is not one of the uh, remedies that's listed up on the board. And fundamentally, it is not a remedy that's independently available on judicial review. What I mean by independently available is I want to leave some room for the, the, the fact that you might get relief that is certiori with directions telling a tribunal to do something that results in that tribunal exercising their power to give you money. Like you might be able to get an order that results in the tribunal being forced to exercise its discretion in a way that gives you money because some tribunals have as part of their jurisdiction potentially giving money. You know, workers' compensation, 
um, if you win a judicial review and you get directions from the court saying this person is entitled to workers' compensation, there is a check waiting for you. But it's not that you got that money through the judicial review process itself. It's rather the judicial review process led to a correct or reasonable um, application of discretion, which is the source of the payment to you. Like that's where the, the power to pay came from is through a proper exercise of the executive function. So you can't get money on a judicial review as an independent form of relief. The only caveat to that is costs. You know, you can get a costs award, your legal costs, but that's not going to cover the actual expenses you're going to incur as a, uh, with getting a lawyer, almost certainly. And it's not going to be aimed at compensating you for whatever harm you say the tribunal did to you. And again, people can get very significantly financially harmed by misapplication of administrative discretion. Ron Corelli, you know, my example of the people who didn't get to, to build them all. I don't think that was wrongly applied discretion, but similar circumstances. If you don't get to do your big project because there's been an administrative mistake, your damages could be significant. Then you think about the scope of things that fall within executive discretion. You think about building a major mine or a pipeline or a forestry tenure and the ability to harvest that. And the damages from a bad application of administrative discretion can be huge. So we've touched on this before. The answer to this lies in the fact that the courts will get involved in overseeing the executive, not just through judicial review, but also in the context of an action for damages. That you can sue the government for um, the way it applied a statutory power. As I said earlier, this is really the purview of tort law. And as I said earlier, you're probably looking at getting into either um, misfeasance of public office or negligence where you've established a duty of care on the Anne's Cooper framework kind of might trigger the back of your mind some tort law concepts you probably learned about. There's a new one that's gaining in steam. That's actually what kept me up late last night, constructive expropriation, which is kind of a growing area where people are trying to get money from the government for uh, administrative actions. This is all a bit of field from admin law. There's just one point that I want to make here, and this is uh, very minor, but so I'll go quickly through it, but um, maybe of some interest. And this is that for a long time, there was a doctrine that said, if I want to sue the government because I say they misapplied their statutory discretion, they made some error in applying the statute, it was incumbent upon me to first go to judicial review and establish that fact, and then bring an action where I say, look, I've already proven that the court hasn't, or that the tribunal didn't exercise its discretion in a reasonable or correct way, however the standard may be. Uh, and now I want to show how much that harmed me and how I fall within a negligence action or a misfeasance action. This is burdensome. You have to do two proceedings when what you really wanted was money all along. So the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Telezone did away with that doctrine. And they said, if what you really want is money because you say the government's harmed you and you have a cause of action, negligence, misfeasance, 
you don't have to do the hoop of a judicial review before you go asking for monetary relief in an action. That's not to say the judicial review becomes a vehicle to seek those damages. It's not. But you could bring an action without having to do a preliminary judicial review. It's really just a streamlining. So I raise that because Telezone is relatively recent. You may come across cases that um, seem confused on this point that are earlier. This is a point that's now settled and, you know, I think pretty clearly settled in a, in a, logical, in a logical way. Um, so just a small thing. The big takeaway is if I think that this government decisions harm me, um, if I want to have that decision changed, I should go with judicial review. If changing it doesn't really do much for me because the damage is done, I should bring an action for damages. That might be worth just a few more words. Um, and the example I'll use is the facts of Telezone. So Telezone concerns a company that was trying to get a broadcasting license back when it was a finite resource in essence, how many uh, different people could broadcast over the airwaves. They didn't get the license. They said it was for an improper exercise of administrative discretion, but the license had already been given to somebody else who had a company up and running. Getting that decision set aside, it's too late. Telezone's not going to get the license now. It's over. The other company's entrenched. So they said, look, I wish that you'd given it to us, but now I just want compensation for your failure, as opposed to there being a real um, substantive benefit they could potentially obtain by changing that administrative decision. And if you're in a position where you could mitigate your losses, avoid your losses by going to judicial review and getting that decision changed, the court's going to still expect you to try that instead of just asking for damages. They'll say, wait, you, you didn't try to, um, you, you didn't try to overturn this administrative decision. You just sat happy with it, but now are saying it caused you all this harm. Uh, I'm not happy with that. I actually literally wrote that argument last night in this case I'm working on. Uh, it's, it comes up quite a bit. So I don't want to say too much more about money on judicial review. Just the, the key point is it's not directly available. Okay, any questions? Yeah. Perfect. That's it. That's really well said. Probably could have saved 10 minutes of everyone's time if I'd said that. That's, that's right. Okay. Um, really good. So that's the, um, that's a little bit annoying, uh, but these are my notes from yesterday, from last class that I just finished up. So I, when you look at the notes, if you pull them, this will be from, from lecture four. Um, well, maybe actually I duplicated in lecture five also, so forget it. There, it's, it's duplicated. I'm moving on to Air Canada now. Um, Air Canada is a really important case for this course because so much of what we deal with is the exceptions, the weird cases, the anomalies, um, the Supreme Court of Canada cases that you know change the law or whatever it is. This is a routine judicial review case 
This is what they look like. And so I want to spend a little bit of time with this case, A, because it just gets a good, clear statement about remedies that ties back into our rule of law conceptions and our conceptions of justiciability, the role of the courts, the role of the tribunals. Um, so I like it for that reason. But I also am going to spend some time with it because I worry sometimes that this all feels nebulous and just landing some of the concepts we've talked about just by explaining one particular case in some detail could give us a better sense as to really what does judicial review look like? How does this, how does this actually function? So I, I'm going to spend a little more time on it and I'm going to introduce some concepts that go beyond remedy that we're going to come back to in this course. And so just as I said about the chapter last class, that that's not a bad one to revisit at the end to see if you kind of get everything. Air Canada and the reasoning in this case is another good one because you would see a lot of good high-level judicial review theoretical thinking and application by Justice Groberman, who's you know one of the leading uh, administrative law judges in British Columbia for sure. Um, so Air Canada, she so was a case argued by my wife, who's one of the people who's supposed to come do a guest lecture who I'm having a hard time pinning down, which <laughs> seems ironic to me. Um, I know where she lives, but, uh, but Air Canada, I don't, I raise it all the time. It's one of the most useful cases in my toolbox because so much is there of just theoretically sound judicial review law being applied. And I just, I'll pause to say that, um, I think it's a shared criticism of the judiciary amongst a lot of lawyers who practice in this area that a lot of judges, um, don't have the soundest grasp on the foundations of judicial review and what it really is and what their role really is. Maybe it's improving, but it's you can't always presume that the sort of first principles that animate uh, the role of the judiciary and the restraint that's supposed to be shown by the judiciary are going to be understood by the court. And so coming back to Air Canada is a good one to remind you know, the trial judge who you may not know their background in judicial review of uh, the basic principles and purpose that you're dealing with here. So with that aside, I'll go into the facts a bit, uh, and then I'll talk a bit about Justice Groverman's reasons. So this is a case arising out of a unique workers' compensation setting. You don't have to know much about this, but it may trigger something in your mind as to, wait a second, why is um, clearly a national, federally regulated entity like Air Canada dealing with BC provincial workers' compensation law? And it's just a, a wrinkle and anomaly in essence that Air Canada and the transportation carriers through agreement have come to a system whereby workers' compensation claims are administered in the various jurisdictions in which they operate. Um, if you're a worker with Air Canada, you'll get the same judicial review, or sorry, the same workers' compensation rights remedies process as would any other worker before the workers' compensation board. But then technically your check would be paid by Air Canada itself, not by the, the BC provincial government. I only say that not to confuse things, just in case you were confused about thinking back to interjurisdictional immunity and some of the cases about regulation of transportation, why this is happening. That's why. Don't worry more about that. So the facts of this case are... Um, I think kind of vivid, where you have a um, 
person who works on the the air the airplanes. Uh, she's a supervisor um, of the sort of cabin crew, and there's a problem on the plane. There's a um, overheating entertainment system, and the pilot, uh, you know, it's not dangerous. We're flying from Japan. We're over the water. We're going to make it to Vancouver. Uh, but radios ahead and says, you know, we do have this problem. So there's emergency personnel on the ground when they land. Uh, the the individual, Mr. Kell, um, you know, investigates the, uh, the the problem. It's quite vivid. They talk about her prying off the cover to this panel and seeing the electrical overheating. Um, and Mr. Kell lands, you know, by all accounts, I would say, behaves admirably in this difficult, stressful situation. But then, like lots of people, once it sets in what just happened, um, she feels anxious. She feels a psychological. Uh, injury. She knows that an overheating uh, entertainment system caused a Swiss air crash some years previous. She also knows the somewhat scary fact that when there's a um, the same kind of code that was issued by the pilot to say there's you know we have a potential problem, uh, sometimes the the Air Force scrambles uh, fighter jets to potentially take down a plane if it's otherwise going to crash over a highly populated area. So there's some real uh, stressful things that she's grappling with. And so she takes time off work. Not a lot of time. Um, actually, a very, very, very small amount of time, maybe even less than you might expect for somebody who's um, had this sort of psychological shock. She goes to apply for her workers' compensation benefits. She applies to the workers' compensation board very um, summary proceeding. They look at her claim. Yes, this is fine. Excellent. I'm just going to start drawing around how this goes up. So we got the workers' compensation board. So she applies here. Okay, yes, excellent, good. Now, ordinarily, just a aside, quick pause, employers don't really care uh, if you get entitled to workers' compensation. Potentially, their premiums could go up down the line. But because of that, that that nuance with Air Canada, I said earlier, that they have to actually pay it, you know, themselves because WCB is administering the benefits, but they're paying them. They may be a little bit more, maybe stingy. So they ask the Workers' Compensation Board to reconsider. So the first thing you have is that's supposed to be a one. Is an internal reconsideration, and if you remember, we're talking about. Uh, these sorts of remedies or sorts of places you can go for relief. Just want to illustrate that is the first thing Air Canada does. The Workers' Compensation Board reconsiders it themselves, and the Workers' Compensation Board says, "No, this is fine. Um, you know, we did we did not make an improper decision here." The Air Canada then actually triggers a second right to reconsideration. So they go back and say, "Wait, what about this other thing? Have you thought about this?" They say, "Yes, we have." You know, indeed, this is fine. So first, first process is really going to WCB. Then there's a reconsideration. Then there's a second reconsideration. Then you go up to the WCAT, the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. So this is not a statutory appeal. This is a review still within the statutory framework. You're still within the workers' compensation statutory scheme. 
and the legislature has created the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal to review decisions of WCB. Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal raises for the first time a question of its territorial jurisdiction over this individual. Now, this was not something either party was fighting about, but this is a point that I will make again, if it's an important point to know just in general. If a tribunal doesn't have jurisdiction over something, it doesn't matter if the parties agree to be there. You can't consent to jurisdiction. Either you have it or you don't. So WCAT says, I don't think this falls within workers' compensation in British Columbia, and I'll tell you why. The injury is suffered on a trans-Pacific flight a couple hours out from Vancouver. That's when she had the shock. Ms. Zakel doesn't live in British Columbia. She actually lives in Manitoba, and she commutes to British Columbia to work these trans-Pacific flights. Then she goes back home, you know, on an Air Canada flight. Presumably she, I think deadheads is the phrase, where you just, flight crew can, can get on other flights. Then she goes home to Manitoba to take her time off. So Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal says, sorry, this happened outside of Canada, and she doesn't live here, and Air Canada is not based in British Columbia. I, I don't see the connection to British Columbia. It's just fundamentally where the plane was landing. So Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal says, I don't have jurisdiction here. Sorry, Ms. Sakel, I'm not going to get to the merits of your mental injury. And that was what the Air Canada was fighting about, was saying, no, this was maybe pre-existing or you know, not a compensable mental injury. So you have this decision from WCAT, which disentitles Ms. Sakel to benefits through WCB because they say, you're in the wrong place. Maybe it's Manitoba, maybe it's federal. I'm not sure where they wanted you to go, somewhere else. So that gets challenged on judicial review to the BC Supreme Court. BC Supreme Court says, WCAT, you are unreasonable. In fact, you're patently unreasonable here. The judge of the BC Supreme Court seems really taken by this problem, this mental gym, gym, gymnastics almost, where the judge says, look, you're telling me that if there's two flight attendants on the same flight, and one lives in Manitoba, and the other lives in British Columbia, and they suffer the same injury in the same place, you have jurisdiction over one and not the other? I mean, who cares where somebody lives? Uh, you could be in a border town and just drive across the border every day. Why does that change? You are employed out of British Columbia. This is the, where the flight, flight crew is based. The judge says, in essence, no uncertain terms. It is crazy to think that this person is not within workers' compensation jurisdiction. So that judge grants the relief of certiorari quashes, sets aside, and sends the matter back, but sends the matter back with clear direction in the form of the judge's reasons, which can only be read as saying there is an inevitable outcome 
and workers' compensation branch must take jurisdiction here. Goes up to the Court of Appeal. Now, remember, we're talking about a flight attendant missing a few days of work. <laughs> but there, there were principles here that were important for all parties. So um, oftentimes on these sort of things, they'll actually render them moot by render them moot by just paying the money and saying, look, we've paid this, but this is a principal thing. We really want the courts to engage with us here. I think that might have been what happened here. I'm not sure if Ms. Sakel really had much skin in the game at this point. Leaving that aside. Um, Court of Appeal has these reasons that are really interesting for a lot of different points in this course. I only ask you to read the highlighted portions, and that's where I want to start on the question of remedy. But then I'm going to flag a few things that are in the reasons, which are just uh, ideas that we're going to come back to and that you want to know are in this case also. So Justice Groberman says, in essence, I agree with the BC Supreme Court. The decision of WCAT was patently unreasonable. But he says, I think it's patently unreasonable because there was clear guidance on how the board is going to interpret questions of residency and how that relates to the board's jurisdiction, which this adjudicator seems to have just ignored completely failed to consider binding policy on this issue. That renders their decision unable to stand. This is something that demands the courts intervene. If you want to think about it in terms of jurisdiction, the legislature never intended to allow WCAT to make decisions while ignoring binding guidance. So he says, yes, this must be set aside. But he says, I'm going to be a little bit more humble, though, than to purport to tell the board how it has to resolve this jurisdictional question. I'm going to recognize that there may be things I don't see here. There may be other reasons that jurisdiction doesn't arise here, or maybe that a proper and careful application of this policy leads to the conclusion that there isn't jurisdiction in this case. So he says, I am going to remit it, but without a direction that would inevitably lead to the finding of jurisdiction here. It's gonna... So he says, and paragraphs 80 and 81 are the ones that I think are start on this. You know, he says, I am unable to agree that the result described is absurd. What he's getting at there is, look, process, problem. There's a problem here. There's a clear problem. But is the result of saying this person's not covered by WCB so obviously absurd? I'm not able to get that far on the substance. It says that paragraph 81, though the reasons provided by the WCAT do not sign up to scrutiny, I'm not at present convinced the result reached by the tribunal is clearly wrong. And this is the standard you want to have in your head. Is the result clearly wrong? Not the process, but the result, the substance. And if the substance 
the substantive result is not clearly wrong, what Justice Groverman is so careful to do is to say, well, then I'm not going to step in and decide it. And principally, why does he do that? Well, he says the legislature empowered the executive, WCB, to decide this question. The legislature chose to give it to WCB, didn't give it to the courts. I need to be careful of my judicial role, which is indeed to ensure the executive hasn't exceeded its jurisdiction, but is not to, in that context, take a decision that was given to the executive by the legislature and claim it for the judiciary. That's the care he wants to take to make sure judicial review stays within its proper limited scope. He's saying, I know I have the power to issue directions, but that power to issue directions needs to be exercised in a manner consistent with the fundamental uh, nature of judicial review as an extraordinary remedy that amounts to the judiciary intervening in otherwise purely executive matters. So it's a nuanced point, but it starts to, I think, tie in some of these big picture theoretical ideas that we've been exploring for the first bits of the class and maybe shows how they can still resonate quite strongly in a, in a remedy. So that's the remedy portion. I'm just going to pause there if there any questions on that before I touch a few other things coming out of Air Canada. Okay, so the other thing that I want to highlight is Air Canada is very good law on the question of what should be before the court on judicial review. Because what you had here was the litigants putting forward affidavits that went significantly beyond the record that was before the, court, before the WCB or WCAT, introducing new facts, new considerations. They tried to do it under the guise of an exception called the general background exception. Don't want to get too far into that right now. But I just want to have the point that that is not the proper function of the court. The court isn't here to determine whether the executive acted in a reasonable way on a different record than was before the executive. That's the nature of certiori, is to say, bring me the record and I'm going to review it. If you start to expand and change that record, then you're leaving the fundamental function of the courts in this, in this framework. So we're going to come back to this when we talk about procedural fairness, because there are exceptions there to expand the record. And in that context, I'll talk a little bit more about this general background exception and questions of the record more broadly. And it will be touched on in the admin law and practice section also. So not leaving this forever, but just flagging it as an idea that comes up here and which I think goes hand in hand with the remedial jurisdiction leading to limits on what record makes sense before the, the courts when reviewing the tribunal for relief in the nature of certiori. Okay, any questions on that point? All right, um, I'm going to take the break in a second. I want to give you one really funny story that I love uh, about WCAT. So my wife used to work there. She said she was tribunal counsel for WCAT. That's why she was involved in this judicial review. 
And she was the lead counsel, and it's annoying that they put the the dude who is like bigger but didn't say a word as the lead counsel on the reasons and her underneath. Sometimes they mess that up. Uh, and it usually happens in that way that the dude gets to be on, you know, the first one. But the anyways, the that's an aside. The I'm very tired today too, so that <laughs> may be a bit loopy. Um, but this story is worth it. This is worth sticking with me for. So Mira's friend, an old colleague, goes up north to stay at a hotel while doing a judicial review for WCAT. So he's in Prince George, I believe. And he he goes to the hotel. He's a very fastidious guy, Walter. And the hotel says, okay, Mr. You know, Mr. Walter, that'll be $120. And he says, no, the, the, the rate for this room is $100. And it says, so right here is the government rate. And the person says, yes, I gave you the government rate indeed, but there's an extra cleaning charge. So what are you talking about? He says, for the cat. He's like, what? It's like it says here, Walter, with cat. <laughs> yeah, anyways, I don't know, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. <laughs> let's take back, come back at 11.35 because I want to show a video. So this is Supreme Court of Canada in Insight. We talked about Insight previously. We'll recall it's not technically a judicial review case, but we're going to see the point here where the court starts grappling with remedies and ultimately realizing what they want to give is a judicial review type remedy. Um, so it's interesting on this remedies point because we really see the court clearly wanting to do something to rectify this situation. And again, that situation was insight operating pursuant to this exemption from the ordinary prohibition under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that would not allow you to run a safe injection site and the government of the day saying, hey, we're not going to grant you a new exemption. So. Again, Insight, uh, their lawyer, Joe Arve, uh, the best. This maybe isn't his finest piece of advocacy. You can see the power of his sort of personality and, and the quickness of his mind here. But I'll show you some of the things later in the class where you can see sort of full powers, how, how amazingly convincing and uh, effective an advocate he can be. But what I like this exchange for is we see the court really um, grappling through what's the remedial thing that we need to do here. Because what he said is, I want you to find that the prohibition is unconstitutional because it can't apply to people like my client. And he also is saying, I want there to be uh, a constitutional exemption from this granted to, to my clients by the court. But he ran into a problem because there was a case called Ferguson where the court had really limited the power to issue constitutional exemptions. That's not really part of this course. That's a constitutional law thing. Um, so he was grappling with, well, the court's got limited power to issue constitutional exemptions. So he was going for, in essence, a remedy of strike this thing down because it's unconstitutionally affecting my clients. Supreme Court of Canada was saying, Section 4 and Section 5 are pretty broad prohibitions under the Controlled Drug and Substances Act as to the possession, you know, distribution of drugs. Or, or do, do we really need to go that broad to craft an appropriate remedy here? And we'll see how they grapple through this question. And as we know from the reading, ultimately what they come down to is the decision to order off, you know, the admin law menu. And they do mandamus, you must 
decide about the question of issuing an exemption with the direction. You must give that exemption. Maybe that's where they're going to land. So let's watch, uh, we're going to watch about eight minutes or so of this interaction, and I think we'll see a lot of the ideas of remedy kind of batted around in an interesting way. That problem, and we aren't here to advocate for um, um, other places in the country. We are here to say that in this application, the law is unconstitutional. And yes, there may be some issues of drafting, but, but they're going to get part, partly insurmountable. I mean, Parliament obviously should pass a statute which allows um, uh, exemptions, requires exemptions, requires exemptions in situations like insight. And, 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 and that may uh, require the use of regulations to sort of fine tune the contours of that exemption. But when the government is presented with a situation like insight, the law should be crafted in a way, should be crafted in a way in which it is, um, there is no question What should you do in that circumstance? What are you looking for of this order? Who's not making a decision? Yeah. So that she's trying to say, I mean, she's saying, look, I want to give you an order of mandamus. I don't think you really asked for it in your in your factum. Can you please say mandamus? She's like, what's that remedy again where somebody will make a decision and you want them to make a decision? Can you say it? He doesn't say it. <laughs> well, I suppose you, you're saying if the, if the government just simply didn't decide. Well, status quo. They, they, isn't it for them to grant the exemption? As I understand, the Attorney General's position says there has to be a decision. So, um, go back to square one uh, and assume you hadn't brought your action. The government had decided not. They have, let me say, it's the 
exemption simply ran out, silence, government does nothing. Uh, your friends opposite say, well, there's no decision, there's no basis for judicial review. Um, I just wanted your position on that. Well, it, it, I mean, I guess that, that, that was what we were, that was exactly what we were worried was going to happen. We were leading up to the trial, we were waiting for a decision, we were waiting for a decision, hoping for a decision, we were getting no indication from the minister except uh, it was going to be negative. If, if, if we're facing a situation where we're beholden to the absolute discretion of the minister whether or not to grant an extension and when he's going to do so, then the problem isn't section 56, the problem is section 4. The problem is that that provides for an absolute prohibition. That's what criminalizes the coin line insight. That's what we challenge. Can I just clarify one point? You mentioned that you had sought a declaration that a Section 56 exemption was not required. Yeah. Am I right in thinking the trial judge dismissed that application and you didn't appeal the dismissal? Um, I don't know that he did so directly. Um, I think he effectively agreed with us because by saying that Section 56 was no, his words was no antidote to Section Section, um, section 4, he's effectively saying that the, there is no need for us to seek a Section 56 exemption. So I think he effectively gave it back to us. I thought he held that declaratory relief would be inappropriate to, in effect, declare that certain conduct was not criminal. Did you say that again? I thought that what the judge decided was that declaratory relief would be inappropriate. No, that was on a different point. That was on whether or not uh, the trafficking provisions um, were even engaged. That was the point that, uh, that Bandu raised. That, that was a different point. That wasn't our point with Section 56. I just don't understand how the declaration of the trial judge would work. He, he declares that the uh, Section 415 on their unconstitutional living uh, suspends it. So on that approach, every time the situation arises, which arguably uh, gave rise to a charter problem, you wipe out the statute, suspend the declaration, and send it back to Parliament. Well, Isn't it a more rational approach for the for Parliament to have said we recognize there are exceptions and we're building a mechanism to deal with it? Well, just being, I invite you then to reconsider this court's decision in Ferguson. Because prior to Ferguson, we were just seeking a constitutional exemption. Perhaps Japan is strong, that's a better answer to your question. Prior to Ferguson, we thought all we needed to do was get an exemption for insight. And you do it one at a time. But the message that we got from this court in Ferguson is that constitutional exemptions are appropriate. Well, you don't need a constitutional exemption if the statute itself provides this uh, leeway. And then the question is, well, how is that exercised? Well, but, but then, but, but the problem we were, I mean, again, we, we could have done a judicial review. That would have been one way of doing it. But, but we, following the, the jurisprudence from the Ontario Court of Appeal in Parker, Section 56 was not something that Mr. Parker had to judicially review the decision on. We, we were of the view we didn't, we weren't compelled to do that either, because the real problem wasn't was Section 4 and Section 56 giving the minister the absolute discretion that it gave um, wasn't, we didn't, wasn't an answer to Section 4. Discretion subject to the charter. I appreciate that. We could have gone that way. I'm not saying we could have gone that way, but, the, but uh, we didn't. In our view, we shouldn't have to be beholden to the Minister of, 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 of Health uh, under Section 56 if our client's charter rights are violated by Section 4. In fact, all right, I'll stop there. Um, so, 
I think it's a quite interesting back and forth. And what you're seeing, oh, am I off? Oh, no. uh, what you're seeing is the court really struggling with this question of remedy, really struggling with whether they have to go so far as to strike down a statutory scheme in order to give effect to what these people have established, or at least presumably uh, the courts accept will it be established with respect to their charter rights. You see the smartest lawyer around being resistant to say this should have been a judicial review. It's a tough concession to make that you're out on the wrong foot and you don't know if the court's going to be willing to kind of grant you the relief anyways in this context or whether there might be some, sorry, if the law is constitutional, if you want to start application judicial review, do it again. And he didn't want to go that way, so he was fighting. He knew the answer to the mandamus question. Like, Joe Arve knows what the name of the thing is when you force somebody to make a decision who's just sitting on something. He didn't want to say it. He wanted to stand on, I want the law declared unconstitutional. But you saw the court just wasn't willing to go that way. They wanted to have a more limited thing that said, look, we have this provision that prohibits, but we have a safety valve provision. The problem is the minister's not exercising their discretion in accordance with that. They're in fact refusing to issue a decision at all. I have a limited remedy because I know my admin law of mandamus combined with the direction. And when I grant that, I can accomplish the goal of avoiding these clients having a, a um, these litigants having a violation of their charter rights, and I can do so while preserving the constitutionality of the scheme. So they find the admin law case in there, and pragmatically they just decide it because it's before them. But I think we see a lot of the themes of this course that we've talked about so far sort of bubbling up in this discussion. One of the things that I thought was most interesting is right at the end, which is why I kept going for a little bit. That's Justice Binney, uh, is the, the judge who's speaking at the end there with Joe Arve. And Justice Binney says, well, wait a second. Um, there's a discretion here. And Joe Arve says, well, I don't want to be at the absolute discretion of the minister. But Justice Binney interrupts him and says, well, discretion's constrained. He says by the charter, but he really could be saying, as we know from Ron Corelli, it's broadly constrained by the purpose of the statute. It's not an untrammeled, unconstrained discretion. And indeed, you remember, ultimately the court decided that not exercising discretion here was wholly inconsistent with the statutory purpose. Remember, that was what we read Insight for before last week, that they actually lowers crime and prevents death. And you said it was safety and health that are the reasons you weren't granting the exemption. So I think this case um, is worth revisiting, A, because I like to show this exchange, uh, B, because it's a nice illustration of the mandamus plus direction route, which is really the strongest in a sense. You have to decide it, you have to decide it this way. Uh, one of the strongest remedies you can give in an admin law context. And then I like it because it, again, brings forth some of these bigger themes that we've been exploring so far. Are there any questions on, on that? All right. 
Um, I'm going to just make the caveat again that um, you don't want to look to insight for your law on how the charter and admin law intersect. We're going to get back to it later, and it's been overtaken in subsequent cases. And it really wasn't the square focus and framing they were deciding this case on because it didn't get off on an admin law footing. So a bit of an anomaly in some ways, but interesting on remedy. Okay. Um, the final thing that I want to talk about today, we may even be able to wrap up a little bit early, which should be fine, is the Cotter case. And I want to talk a little bit about the question of justiciability and how that, again, factors into the court's thinking on remedy. And this, I think, builds off of Justice Groberman's fundamental concern about staying within the proper judicial sphere within admin law. So Cotter uh, is a very tragic case, of course, of a Canadian citizen who was involved in you know, alleged war crimes and detained in Guantanamo Bay and was found to have had his charter rights violated in an ongoing way. Um, in fact, with complicity by the Canadian government. So again, we are not in a strict admin law case. This is framed as a charter question, uh, pure charter action. But the question, the question for the court was, if I accept that there's these charter violations and they're ongoing charter violations, what remedies can I, can I order? And what Cotter said is, well, you tell the prime minister to exercise their foreign affairs power to stop this charter violation. We are now at the absolute highest level of the executive in terms of prime minister dealing with foreign governments. but they still have to exercise those powers legally. And one of the, and while those powers are gonna be subject to an incredibly wide discretionary ambit, that discretion isn't gonna go so far as violating the constitution, right? There's some constraints and there's a charter constraint here that Canada's run afoul of. So what does, the govern, what does the court do? Well, they say, look, it's within my power. I could tell the, the prime minister how to conduct foreign affairs, but I shouldn't. It wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be a proper restrained exercise of the judicial function. Fundamentally, a question of justiciability. What should the court do in this circumstance? Not what can it, but what should it do? And it decides it'll be restrained. It's going to declare that there is a problem, but it's not going to tell the government how to solve it. 
going to rely on trust that the government's going to respect that declaration and take good faith efforts to solve the problem. But the court's not going to purport to be in a position to know how to properly direct the government and how it conducts its foreign affairs. It's not going to presume to know the full context of U.S.-Canadian relations that could be at play here, potentially the hyper-secret matters that could be put at issue if the court directs something to happen that can't happen for some particular reason or another. So they say, declare there's a problem, leave it up to the government to find a solution. I raise this case for not much more than that, that it's the simple thing about restraint in exercising remedial powers and that restraint being especially likely to be exhibited when we get really high up the chain to high-level government powers, high-level discretion at large matters of state. But I don't want you to confuse that reticence, that, that, um, that sort of uh, willingness to be, um, to be sort of humble as to the role and limits of knowledge don't confuse that with a lack of legal ability to interfere. The judiciary can oversee the executive no matter who it is or what it's doing if they stray beyond the scope of their powers. Final thing I want to touch base on on Cotter is the thing that I've been dancing around so often, the prerogative comes up here. So I say over and over again, the executive gets their power from the legislature. And then I've said a few times, order the royal prerogative, but don't worry about it, it doesn't really matter very much. I still stand by that. But this is one of the instances where the source of the power is the royal prerogative. So you get an explanation of what the royal prerogative is at paragraph 34 of Cotter, 34, 35. And it's just a good thing to star to know that if you, if this starts tickling the back of your mind, well, there's that prerogative thing that's also there and I need to factor it in. Remember, Cotter is a good place to go back and look at it. So the court, 34, says, the prerogative power is the residue of discretionary or arbitrary authority which at any given time is legally left in the hands of the crown. So right there, it doesn't sound great for some of our rule of law concepts, does it? The prerogative power is the residue of discretionary or arbitrary authority, which at any given time is legally left in the hands of the crown. And so what you hear in this is residue, it is a tiny bit that's left, and it's a tiny vestige of true monarchy, right? Like, this is dating back to the crown being the king or queen with absolute authority. This is dating back, in essence, to pre-Magna Carta type law. Like, we're getting really old here. The idea is that there are some things that have always been done by government that there's no statute 
a regulation authorizing the government to do. For those very limited things, for those very limited things, the courts have said, look, I have two choices. I could either recognize an ongoing prerogative power or I could say the government can't do this thing that the government always has been doing. They've chosen the latter. But as soon as parliament or the legislatures legislate in an area that was previously covered by the prerogative power, unless they say otherwise, they're deemed to have done away with the prerogative power and constrained it to the legislation. So there's no statute empowering Stephen Harper to talk to you know, whoever was the president at that point, maybe Barack Obama, about Omar Khadr and argue for his repatriation. Obviously, though, the head of state has the power to talk to other governments and conduct foreign affairs. So what's the source of that power? They find it in the prerogative power. If parliament chose to enact the Conduct of Foreign Affairs Act or whatever it is, and say, this person has the power to negotiate with these governments on these terms in this way, that would be found to now be the source and the prerogative power, you know, the residue would get that much thinner. So it can be a very tricky subject. You can go find books on it in a library and you can get really deep into this stuff if you want to. It really doesn't come up very often. The major place that significant power is wielded in which finds its roots in prerogative is foreign affairs. The weird one, the really weird one, is passports. There is no statute authorizing the issuance of passports. It's very strange. I don't know what the, what the really reason for that is. Rather, there's a passport order. So if you Google, you know, Canada Passport Act, nothing. But the first thing that will hit, they'll say, I know, I'm Google, I know. You want the Canada Passport order. Looks like a statute, but it just isn't. It's, it's not passed by the legislature. It's enacted by the executive pursuant to their prerogative power over foreign affairs. Weird vestige. That said, someone doesn't give you a passport, you know, Babylon, we'll come back to that. You're just as able to judicially review to ensure that the executive stayed within the scope of that Canada passport order. It's really a distinction without a difference. But so prerogative power, weird, vestigial, allows the government to continue doing the kind of things it always was doing, isn't something that can be a grab for new powers or new authority. The other place it comes up often is the bestowing of honors. Uh, you know, it's a, there's no order, in Can order of Canada Act, I don't think. I think that that is something that is given pursuant to the um, prerogative power. So it's important to know what it is. It's also important to know that it is just like how certiorari is the remedy that you really want to put on a pedestal. I mean, even more so, the executive power comes from legislation. The prerogative power is such a tiny exception to that statement that it's not worth a ton of your mental space.
Are there any questions about that? No. Yeah. The crown loses that power. The pr yeah, the crown. The, the it's deemed unless there's otherwise a. My understanding is unless there's otherwise a um, something, some indication in the statute. Otherwise, that is deemed to have replaced the prerogative power. And that's in essence the principle of parliamentary supremacy. At, in some sense at work, yeah. And that's kind of, that really comes back to principles of the Magna Carta, that we're taking the power from the monarch as a person and putting it in parliament. And then sort of seeing, well, the job's not quite done, but we've only had 10,000 years to work this through, so. Um, or 1,000 years, I guess. Math is tricky. All right. Um, Let's just pause there. I think that's probably a good space to stop today. Um, and we'll pick it up next Wednesday. Thanks so much.